Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. Welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me is Kendra Maurer. And tonight we're welcoming Fred Morrow and his daughter Claire. Hi. And hey. Hi. And we might have his wife Rebecca. She's she's in there. She's she's moving around out there. So they are experiencers and they have multiple interesting experiences to tell us. So Fred, why don't you jump right in? Uh well. A little bit of background on me. We're, uh, we're all from Odessa, Texas, which is a small town out in the middle mm-hmm. of West Texas. There's absolutely nothing out there except for oil rigs and the Bush family, and that, that's about it. Kind of place that a, uh, a nuclear web strike could actually improve the looks of the place. <laughs> <laughs> well, that we have Friday Night Lights. We are the Friday Night Lights oh, That's right. In fact, uh, I was... When that book was written, that was my sophomore year in high school. So I like knew all the people that were involved in all that. But that aside, uh, was in the Navy for 24 years. Uh, we spent uh, seven years out of that 24 living in Japan. Uh, we bounced around pretty much all over the country. We started. I started off in Pearl Harbor, and then we went to Washington, then Florida, then uh, Norfolk, Virginia, Rhode Island, and let's say we wound up in Japan for. Uh, for about seven and a half years. And uh, yeah, it was a really great ride that uh, we had. We got to see lots of stuff. And in the process, a lot of strange things happened to us uh, along the way. Um, for myself, um, it started off with a, a family ghost in my house uh, that we would believe was our, that of our, uh, my great great aunt Virginia was. Uh, my mom always just called her Great Aunt Virginia because it would have been her Great Aunt. But she was a uh, a lady who was born in 1880 in Silver City, New Mexico, and then she grew up in uh, El Paso, Texas. And her family uh, that she was born into was one of the oldest families in El Paso. They were like within the, the top five oldest families. Uh, she was a very uh, by all descriptions, very prim and proper Victorian-style woman, uh, very influential. She lived uh, physically on the border. I mean, the her the terminus of her backyard was the Rio Grande River. She was nice. that close. Wow. And that spot where she lives now is now a – there's a plaza and a park there that uh, bears the family name. So that's kind of gives you an idea of, you know, their status or stature in that city. But uh, she passed away in 1970, and when she did, uh, my mother uh, was received the majority of the things that came out of her house. So we had uh, several large furniture pieces. She had hats. She had photographs, papers, uh, just a t- 
ton of materials out of her house and that we that the house was decorated with. And one of the main things was this large photograph. It was a, it was a full-length photograph of my great aunt Virginia and her mother. And her mother is seated in the photograph. And it was taken about 1897 or 98 because Virginia is about 17 or 18 in the, in the photograph. And it had a large, it was uh, kept in a large uh, gilded frame, a large, heavy wooden gilded frame that probably was about uh, two and a half feet by three feet. And it, was, it was a good sized picture and it was, and it was heavy, very, very heavy. And it was the only thing that hung on this one particular wall on our, in our living room. And the way, and I know I'm kind of getting a little in the weeds here, but it's pertinent. It hung on this one wall, and the, the front door was on the same wall. And there was Noah in the living room opened up into the dining room, and there was a large picture window there, but it didn't open up. So the reason I say this is just so you know, there's no real crosswind that can be formed in this space. And what we got to noticing was that very frequently the picture would hang askew. And we couldn't figure out why that was, because like I said, if it was a heavy photograph, if there was a wind blowing through there, it would have been heavy enough to knock off lamps and anything else in there. There was the only furniture immediately around there. There was two chairs that flanked it and a table directly underneath there that had a small lamp. Uh, but the chairs did, were just, you know, uh, lounger chairs, so they didn't actually, you know, lean back or anything like that. They, they didn't come in contact with the wall. But it would just periodically just hang askew. And we finally figured out, or, or I think it was my sister that noticed, that it would only do this when there was something happening in the family that was uh, kind of tumultuous. So there was an argument in the immediate family or a death in the immediate family or or something along those lines. But something happening that disrupted the the norm of the family. Mm-hmm. It would happen, and uh, the the one incident that really pops to mind that uh, let us know that that was the case was uh, this that happened in the early '80s. My mother had been preparing all week for my grandmother to visit. My grandmother and my aunt were coming coming into town, and she'd been just going out of her way to get everything ready. Saturday rolls around, and that's the day they're supposed to arrive. And she gets a phone call, and it's my grandmother. And she says, yeah, I just decided I'm not going to come today. And my mom's like, well, why? Well, I just decided I'm not going to come. So mom was not happy at all. <laughs> so she and she expressed exactly how unhappy she was with my grandmother. So mm-hmm. my mom's in the kitchen. She's just going off. My sister and I are sitting in the living room and we can hear all this going on in the background and we're just kind of like, all right, we're just going to ignore this. We're watching television. And all of a sudden we hear this scraping noise and we both kind of stopped, looked at each other. And then we both at the same time looked at the picture of Aunt Virginia and that thing was almost sideways. (laughs) And about that time mom got off the phone, she comes out of the kitchen and she is like, I am so put out with them. I can't believe that they're doing this. You know, I've been getting ready, blah, 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 blah. And my sister just kind of stopped her and she's like, mom, 
look at Aunt Virginia. And of course, she looked up there and she's like, oh, okay. Maybe I should back <laughs> off a little bit. So there was the leading picture, but um, it was kind of interesting. She never, that, that was the only time she ever kind of got after my mother uh, that we noticed. Uh, my sister, my, my father, and I were always the focal points, it seemed. I guess that's because we were always screwing up, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, uh, there was one, one incident my father related where he was um, standing in the hallway. There was a little doorway from the, going from the hallway into the kitchen. And he was standing there talking to my mother. And he had his elbow or his, uh, his hip on his hand on his hip. And his elbow kind of jutted into the, into the hallway. And he was just talking to my mother. And all of a sudden, he just, just like that, cut off mid-sentence. And my mother was like, what's the matter? Because he had turned and he was looking in the hallway. He looked down one way, he looked the other way. He went across the hall into my bedroom and looked in there. And then he came back and my mother was like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, where, where's Fred at? And she said, well, he's in the backyard. And then he asked, well, where's my sister? And she, she said, well, she's out with some friends. She's like, what, what's the matter? And he said, well, I was talking to you. And I felt someone grab my elbow move it, and then let go. Already. And she was like, okay, well, maybe you were in her way. Get your elbow out of the way. You know? <laughs> and she got up again a, uh, a few months later. He uh, he worked a swing shift. And uh, this particular one, the sw uh, swing shift he was on, he would be working nights, and he would come home in the morning, sleep during the day. He got home and he was the only one in the house. He went to bed and he felt someone sit down on the foot of the bed and he immediately sat up. And as soon as he did, he, whatever it was, got up and he grabbed a gun, you know, immediately searched the room, found nothing, got up, looked through the house, didn't see anything, decided he was just tired and went back to bed, laid down again. And again, he felt that, that, de that depression again. And he immediately jumped up, again, grabbed the gun, did the search, decided, okay, he was going to wait a minute. So he had a cup of coffee, let, you know, let that finish, and then he went back to bed. This time he faced the opposite direction, though. Never happened again. <laughs> but the, And then there was the incident with my sister and I that both of us experienced. Um, this had happened in summer. Um, my sister and I were home, of course, from school. And my sister had done something that she wasn't supposed to. I can't, I can't remember what it was. And me being the bratty brother that I was and still am, according to her, I uh, immediately called mom and got her in trouble. <laughs> and so her punishment was she had to clean the living room, vacuum and dust it. So there she is. She's standing in front of me and she's vacuuming. And I'm sitting in this chair and I am just smiling, enjoying my handiwork, you know. And the, from where this chair was, I could sort of see down the hallway and I saw some movement out of my peripheral vision. And I turned and looked, didn't see anything. And I turned back to look towards my sister. And right about then, I felt a finger lay, lay itself right on the side of my nose and then just kind of flick off the tip like that. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, what? 
was that? And then I, was, I was kind of perplexed. I was like, did I really just feel that? <laughs> and then I turned and I looked back towards the television. And of course, my sister is mm-hmm. vacuuming in front of me and she had her back to me. And she had her hair put up and went with one of those little plastic combs. Mm-hmm. And I saw that comb lift up out of her hair, levitate above her head, move to the left, and drop. Mm-hmm. And she stopped vacuuming. She turned and just laid into me because she thought I had done it. And I was like, what's the <laughs> distance between us? How did I reach yeah. up there? You know, you're taller than me. How did I manage to reach up there, grab that, pull that out, and then get back here and sit down without you noticing? She didn't care. She was she was already she was already mad at me anyway. So <laughs> she picked the, the comb up, put her hair back up, slammed the comb back in place, kept vacuuming. This time she turned and faced me. It was vacuuming and facing me. And I saw that comb raise straight up out of her hair again, move off to the left and drop. And this time she stopped. She looked at me. She looked down at the floor. She saw the comb. She looked up at the picture of Aunt Virginia and just kind of nodded at the picture, put her hair back up. And- <laughs> <laughs> now, and I- she was in a she was an opinionated lady. Oh yes, yes, very much. So. Let's <laughs> say if if anything was wrong, she let you know about it. And I was the only one that ever saw her, or at least I thought I saw her. Um, and from where my bedroom was, and the way my bed faced, I could actually see partially down the hall. And I recall I was at, up late one night and I was reading a magazine, and when you know, all of a sudden, it just felt like something was looking at me. And I put the magazine down. I looked up, looked down the hall, and I could see the shape of a woman there. And she was in this very typical, you know, Victorian typical long dress, you know, full length uh, sleeves, high neck, and all that. Really couldn't make out any facial features or anything like that. But I clearly saw this woman standing there. And then she faded out. And at that point, I was like, Light off, you know, magazine to the side, head over, you know, covers overhead, you know, and yeah. Ever since then, like I said, she would she would lean anytime anything happened. Like when my parents got divorced, she leaned a lot. Uh, when my uncle passed away, she leaned. Um, now I haven't heard of anything since then happening. You know, at least not since 1991. I haven't heard of anything, you know, of that sort happening. Uh, yeah. And of course, my mother, uh, she uh, moved out of that house that we grew up in, and she moved to uh, a central part of Texas on a little uh, house by a, a lake. And she's got all her stuff up there, including Aunt Virginia. Aunt Virginia has her own room now. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting is that she started to field out uh, a lot of her, uh, Aunt Virginia's belongings to my sister and I. So... My sister has some of her uh, photographs and knickknacks from her house. Uh, in the room behind me, I have the uh, uh, china closet that belonged to her. Uh, there is a shiffer robe that I didn't want, but unfortunately, when I was playing with a gun one day, I shot it, and so now it's mine. Yeah, I could so I'm gonna get I'm gonna get the I'll get the shift robe. 
That's one way to mark your turf. <laughs> Very Texas of you. <laughs> so uh, the thing that we are slightly at odds about is who gets the picture? Because I don't want it, and I'm like, I don't want it. And so it's kind of like going back and forth as to who's going to get the photograph. So I suspect whoever winds up with it's probably we're probably going to catch it because she's probably getting ticked off. Like, okay, enough. You two one of you (laughs) (laughs) knowing my sister, she'll probably try to pawn it off on one of her kids. So yeah, I can see that happening. So that was a family ghost we had. Um, said she, that's cool. uh, She, she, she was around. She always just got after my, uh, after my father, my sister and myself, Always left mom alone, but uh, yeah. So that kind of set the stage for uh, what would come later. I joined the Navy when I was eighteen, and went off on uh, was stationed on a ship out of Hawaii. I was very lucky to get those orders, and a brand new ship. And on her first deployment, we uh, were headed to the Middle East. Uh, left out of Hawaii, uh, popped across the Pacific, and uh, our first uh, stop was in Singapore. And we anchored out, and a couple of friends of my, uh, mine and I decided we were going to go in town and check this place out. So we took the Liberty boat in, into town, and they had a uh, the ship had arranged for a bus to pick you up at the uh, fleet landing. And it would drop you off at this park right adjacent to the downtown area. Now, what happens next, there's there's nothing weird, well, nothing paranormal or supernatural or anything like that about it. It was just weird, uh, culturally speaking. And it kind of set the stage for what would happen uh, about an hour or two later. So we, we stepped off the bus, at the, and we're at this park, and a friend of mine notices, he's like, hey, there's a supermarket over there. He wants to go find out what one would find in a Singapore supermarket. So I'm like, okay, cool. So we head over towards this thing. And as we approach, we noticed there was this tent set up in front of it. And there was people gathered around and, you know, it's milling about. And one of my friends said, oh, this must be a, a farmer's market or something like that. And I was like, okay, well, let's check that out after we hit the store. So we go to the store, we look around, we come out, we go over to the what we think is the farmer's market. We walk up to the tent. And instead of being greeted with fruit stands and things of that nature, what we find is a elongated table running the, the length of the tent. And there is just all kinds of food spread out on this thing from one end to the other. And there are people sitting there eating, and there's people up serving each uh, serving them some, themselves or serving other people. And just, you know, chatting, you know, and I'm like, oh, must be a picnic. Okay. I guess they decided to set up in front of the store in case they ran out of something. Makes sense. And then I looked towards the end of the table. And that's when I noticed there was a chair there that was empty. But there was a large portrait propped up on the chair. And then I, and there, was a, there was a portrait of a, of a man. And then I noticed a casket behind the portrait with the man in the portrait in the casket. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is a funeral banquet in front of the supermarket. Great. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oops. Well, you know, yeah, we were like, okay, uh, never mind. We're not here to buy anything. <laughs> it's a whole new movie genre yeah. of the funeral crashers. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided, no, we'll, we'll move on from the from the funeral there. So we uh, went on into the downtown section. Now, the this area of Singapore, we were in the downtown Singapore, and it's one of the largest cities in Asia. This particular area is right along the Raffles River, and it's like the oldest section of Singapore. And if you go there today, it's been beautifully restored. I mean, it is just gorgeous. It's a tourist destination. There's all these upscaled stores and stuff there and bars, and it's a really neat place. Uh, however, in 1992, when this happened, uh, it looked anything but. In fact, it looked like the kind of place like well, – actually, I very clearly recall thinking – I'm either going to get robbed or murdered or both in this area. And this uh, friend of mine was that was with us. He was determined to go find this bar that he had been to before in Singapore. So he is leading us into this, you know, into this trap. As far as I could tell, <laughs> well, we go. We march straight in there because we're intrepid young sailors, and then by intrepid I mean stupid. Uh, so we march <laughs> straight into there. And like I said, Singapore is one of the largest cities in Asia. This was the middle of the week, and this is just around noontime or thereabouts. So as you would expect, there is traffic on the streets. There are cars. There are bicycles. The sidewalks are jam-packed with people going back and forth. The uh, the street we're on has storefronts along the, front, uh, along the side, and then there's apartments above them. And there are people flowing in and out of the stores, and it's, and with that is all the noise that you'd expect to hear in a major city. So we're going along, and this guy leading us decides that we're on the wrong street, and he says, "Hey, when we get to the next intersection, we need to turn right, go over a block, and then we'll be on the street that we need to be on." Okay, so we get to that intersection, we turn, we cross the street. And I recall on the corner, there was a bar and there were several of the uh, bar girls sitting outside and they were yelling and beckoning, at, beckoning us to, you know, come to their bar. And we were kind of like, no, we got a mission to do here. And as soon as we passed that bar, it was like somebody flipped a switch and the whole atmosphere of the place just changed dramatically and it became very very the only way I could describe it is heavy it's very very heavy in fact a heaviness that I, I did not experience again until we went to the Lizzie Borden house you know 20 years later mm. and it was just very heavy very still I noticed it immediately and I noticed uh, as we moved along I noticed my friends kind of we're catching on to it because I saw that before we were all just kind of boresighted. We kind of look left and right a little bit, but now everyone was kind of looking around like they were expecting something to come at them. Yeah. And we got about a quarter of the way down through the street. And that's when it dawned on me what was so different. I could see at the end of the block where we're the, the intersection we were headed to, I could see the traffic. I could see people. I turned around <clears throat> and I could see the people and I could see the traffic behind me, but I didn't hear a single 
noise, bit of noise. Mm. Nothing. It was just dead silent. And not only that, it dawned on me, we were the only people on that street. There was no, mm. no cars. There was no, uh, no bicycles. On the previous street, there had been vendors on the side of the, uh, on the sidewalk. There was none of that. The storefronts were open. The, the shutters were up. The doors were open. But the lights were off and there was nobody inside. Mm. So <laughs> it's a very heavy feeling. There's no noise. And it's, it's weird. <laughs> but we're we're plowing straight at, straight ahead. We got about three quarters of the way down down this block, and I passed a door to my left hand side, and some light kind of glinted out of there and caught my attention. And I stopped and I turned to face it. I was at a distance of about a foot, maybe half a foot from the threshold of the door. And it took a moment for my eyes to kind of adjust to the to what I was looking at, and I could see through the door. It was there was no actual door there; it was just an open frame. But I could see into the room after a moment, and I realized that the light that caught my attention was a row of candles that were sitting on the on a ledge mounted on this back wall that was probably a distance of about uh, twenty feet or so from me. And I remember glancing at that, and I kind of glanced to the left, and I could see a window with allowing a, a little bit of light in, but there was a building kind of jammed right up next to the thing. So there wasn't much light. And I could also tell that I was blocking the majority of the light coming into the room because I was standing in the doorway. And I, and I was kind of looking at that window to my left, and I glanced back at the candles, and I just froze because there was a woman not five feet away from me. And she was sitting in a chair uh, with her right side facing me. So I saw her in profile. Uh, she was wearing, ironically, a, a Victorian style dress. Uh, long, it was you know, ankle length skirt with long sleeves, high collar. She had a... Um, small cap on with a veil, a black veil that was pulled back over the back of her hair. And she was elderly. She looked to be easily in her 70s or 80s. Uh, she seemed to be Malaysian in origin, possibly. And she was boresighted, just staring straight ahead. And I looked at her, you know, kind of, I was confused because I had, don't, didn't understand how I had looked at that light, and I didn't see her the first time, but there she was. And I'm sitting there looking at her, and I'm kind of said I'm kind of confused. So I know I'm blocking the light, and I would think that her reaction should be turn and look and see what's blocking the light, but she she doesn't do that. So I shifted to my left a little bit though, because I wanted to see what she was staring at, and that's when I got shock number two, because about five to six feet in front of her was a what appeared to be an old-fashioned hospital gurney something like you'd see out of a out of the, the 40s or 50s something like that um, and on top of it was a coffin not a casket but an old you know octagon style coffin 
uh, that was small, and I could see a little girl lying in it. And I was, you know, just dumbfounded by that. That really, you know, just threw me for a loop. Yeah. Because I, I knew what I was looking at, but nothing about it registered as correct. The, right. the fact that right. she's not dressed right. Nothing in that room looks like it's from 1992. It looks like it's from a, you know, something from a different time frame, probably early 1900s or late uh, late 19th century, something like that. And I just kind of watched her for a moment. And about that time, I heard one of my friends yell and called my name. And I turned and looked. And they were almost to the intersection now. So I looked back. The old woman's still there. Uh, child in the cat coffin is still there. Lights are still there. And I just watched them for about another two, three seconds. And then turned and ran to catch up with my friends. We hit the intersection and switch. Everything's back to normal. The, that heaviness is gone. All of a sudden, there is noise. There's racket. Wow. Uh, I can hear people chattering away. There are cars beeping their horns. There's cars in the street. There's people on the street. It's like everything back to normal. That's wild. So That's just... I don't know what that was to this day. I, I don't know if if what I saw was real. I don't know if it was a time slip, if it was a ghost. I, I just don't know. All I know is that nothing on that block was right. <laughs> right. It just had this, just that feeling of everything is, everything about it was just wrong. <laughs> don't know if I can describe it. Do you... Do you know what the name of any of the surrounding shops or streets were by chance? I don't recall anything jumping out at me as far as uh, names go. They were, uh, like I said, at this point in time, that area was very rundown. It was a very poor section of Singapore. So it was just a cluster of of different shops. I, I recall the, I recall a meat market. I recall uh, kind of like a secondhand store. I, re- I remember like what looked like a hardware store of some sort. Um, okay. And I said that there was, a, there were bars interspaced here and there, but uh, no, nothing specific, no, you know, nothing, okay. nothing named brand. I, I have there, a, nor was Walmart. I have a good friend from Singapore, so now I'm going to be like, "Oh, I got to ask you this question. <laughs> Do you know about anything like this?" It's well, it's so, an area. The general area of where it was was is now is mm-hmm. referred to as uh, Clark's Clark Key, and uh, it, it was just that kind of general area. And like I said, yeah. there now looks nothing like it. Yeah. I mean, it is just redone, upscale, beautiful. You know, go there, have a great time. Yeah, they've done a lot of amazing things yeah. in Singapore. Hopefully, the bar you walk into does not have a dead body in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's shocking. Mm. That that would be. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was highly unusual. Uh, and this same this same deployment 
uh, we did have one incident that occurred, which I I remember it happening, and it was one of the things that happened, and you kind of like file it away and never think about it again, and then something happens, and you're like, oh yeah, I remember this incident, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what happened with, with this. We were on our way back. We had finished the deployment. We got into the Middle East, and we had uh, headed to Australia, so we're chugging it back across the Pacific and heading back towards Hawaii. And when you get out in the middle of the Pacific, there is nothing out there. There's nothing at all. No no ships, no aircraft, just nothing. So I mean, it was not unusual for you to go a week or more and look at your radar screen and it's just blank. There's nothing. And, that's not unusual. Mm-hmm. So we were on uh, a return trip, and this occurred uh, around 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, I think. Uh, there was minimal manning in the Combat Information Center uh, to kind of give people a break uh, after being on 12 on, 12 off for almost six months straight. But we were going along, and it had been – one of those situations where the screens had just been completely blank, no contacts, nothing. And all of a sudden, the uh, what we call RSC, who was the who operated the Spy One radar, which was kind of the main radar of the ship, he perked up and he's like, "Hey, I got an air contact." Okay, great. And so he uh, starts kind of focusing in on it, and he. Rattles off the, the the range, the range that it's at. He rattles off the bearing, and then he says, "And its altitude is." And he kind of stops, and he's like, well, "That's weird. It's eighty thousand feet. And that's that's pretty high. Your average, yeah, your your average passenger liner, or, you know, passenger aircraft travels anywhere from uh, thirty to thirty five thousand feet on average. Well, this thing was up there, and we're like, okay, well, that's kind of unusual. Well, that caught the attention of the, the senior watch officer, and he's like, it's at what height? And he's like, at 80,000. So he says, print check. And that's the code word for every station to start, you know, taking a look at this thing and seeing what, what we can glean off of it. So we're going down the line, and uh, the ID station says he has nothing, no transponders coming off of it. He gets to me, and I re- operate the electronic warfare console. And what that does is, if it's got any radars on, I, I'm picking up radars. Well, there's nothing. And, of course, all the different radar scopes are reporting, well, they got it at such and such bearing at such and such altitude. But then the secondary air search radar operator looks at it, and he's like, I've got this thing doing 100 knots. Actually, less than that. It's more like 95 knots. And the uh, senior watch officer was like, are you sure? He's like, yeah. And then he said, cross check it with the other error search radar. So those two guys, they sit right next to each other. So they're comparing notes and they're like, yeah, this thing's at 80,000 feet and it's only doing about 95 knots. Now, what that means is at that altitude, the air pressure is so, the air pressure is so thin uh, that you have to have a... a good amount of airspeed going just to stay aloft. 
Yeah. We're talking, you have to be doing a minimum of 150 knots or more just to stay up there. So at 95 knots, he should be falling out of the sky like a rock. Mm -hmm. And it traversed, went straight overhead, marked on top of us. Uh, they called up to the bridge. They had the lookouts look, uh, look for it. They saw nothing. And whatever it was just went right overhead, continued on, and then just we lost contact on it, and that was that. So, you know, we logged it in our logs and just kind of thought, well, I don't know. You know, we didn't have any, there was no indication that it was military. There's no indication that it was civilian. We, we had no idea what it was other than that it was a unusual contact at an unusual altitude flying at a speed that it shouldn't be or that it, that should have it dropping out of the sky. So we get back to port. Uh, fast forward about a year and a we get a new uh, batch of people coming in to replace people who've rotated out. And one of them is a operations specialist, second class named Kevin Day. Does that name sound familiar to you at all? Okay. Kendra's going to like, maybe. <laughs> it's Maybe. Go ahead. I don't know. So Kevin Day, is the, uh, he's operations specialist, second class at that time. Uh, I got to know him. We did a deployment together. Uh, so I knew who he was. And, you know, I, I did my, uh, after I got back from that second deployment, I moved on to other assignments. Went my whole career, never heard from him again. Never even thought of him. In fact, the only time I ever even thought about him was because I happened to break out my old cruise book and was thumbing through it and saw a picture of him. And then when the whole incident about the USS Nimitz comes out, that's mm-hmm. And they start talking about, you know, who's involved in this, that, and the other. And all of a sudden I hear Operation Senior uh, Operation Specialist Senior Chief Kevin Day. And I was like, Yeah. I know yeah. that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and of course he's the one. He was the uh he was the senior air intercept coordinator on the USS Princeton, which is the same class ship as uh the USS Chosen, which is the ship that we were both on together. Um he was the one that first sighted those tic tacs on on his on the radar, and was noticing these again weird things up at eighty thousand feet, flying at you know ninety knots, which they sh you know they should be falling out of the way too slow, way too slow. Yeah. So when I heard that, when I saw him, uh, saw him, uh, um, someone was doing an interview interview with him. They actually had him on video, and I was, I was like. I know that guy. <laughs> and then he got to talking about it and I was like, oh yeah, we had something like that happen. And then all of a sudden that just, you know, jumped to mind that, that we'd had that happen. So I don't know if that ever got reported. I don't think it would have. It might have made it into the ship's deck log, but you know, if it got naturally, you know, recorded for posterity, I, I don't know. Right. So that happened on that ship. The last ship I was on was USS Blue Ridge out of uh, Yokosuka, Japan. And again, we were out in the middle of the Pacific, uh, middle of nowhere. And again, in one of those situations where we were going, had gone for days with no radar contacts whatsoever. And uh, I, this time I was the senior watch officer in CIC. And 
the officer of the deck who's in charge of driving the ship, he's up on the bridge. He calls down to me and he's like, hey, um, do you have any air contacts? And I said, well, hold on, I'll go look. So I went to my air search radar guy. And this air search radar we had was just an antiquated piece of junk. But I was like, take a look if you got any any air contacts. And so he looked and he's like, no, nothing. I said, do a transponder search. So he does a transponder search, nothing. So I thought, okay, well, so I went over to the EW corner and looked at, didn't even ask him. I just looked at the screen. I was like, it's blank. There's nothing there. And so I had the two surface search radars guys look, and theirs were blank. So I called back up to the guy, and I was like, I got nothing. There's nothing surface, nothing air. I don't have any emissions coming from anywhere. And he was like, are you sure? I was like, yeah, I'm sure. And then he, and he came back, called me, and he's like, okay, yeah, just check again from time to time. And I was like, okay, I will. And this, when he said that, it struck me as odd because I knew this guy. He was a very, he had a very gregarious personality. And he was the kind of guy that the, the world could be flying apart around you, and he's going to be the one with a smile on his face telling you everything's going to be okay. <laughs> but something in his voice told me he was shaken a little bit. So I said it, I was going to go up and talk to him. So I went up to the bridge, uh, walked in there. Of course, it's pitch black, so I'm having to feel no way around. And I finally found the bosun mate of the watch and asked him, where's the officer of the deck? And he told me, well, he's out on the bridge wing. So I go out on the bridge wing, and sure enough, I find him. And I was like, uh, so we didn't see anything out there. What, what did you see? And he's like, well, I saw a point of light. And it was way up there. I thought it was a satellite. And I was like, okay, well, you see satellites all the time. I was like, what, you see an iridium flare where it catches the sunlight and it bursts? It, yeah. It's really bright. And he's like, no. But it looked just like a satellite and was going along. And then it stopped and did a 90 degree turn. <laughs> I was like, oh, satellites don't do that. <laughs> Aircraft don't do that. So, yeah, that, we didn't know what that was. No idea at all. And that one... You know, wasn't logged or anything like that. It was just one of those weird things that happened. So, yeah, was, I hmm? I saw something like that in northern Minnesota one time. Oh, yeah? it, it just it's just it tracks like a satellite, and then it just stops and turns, mm -hmm. and it's the weirdest thing. I hadn't thought about that in years. Yeah, and it just, you know, that's the way he described. It. He said it just it was moving along perfectly smooth, just just like a satellite should, and then all of a sudden stops on a dime, turns. You're like, I'm done stargazing. <laughs> Type of yeah, you're like, this is over. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, that those were the UFOs that I, well, like I said, I don't know if they were U really count them as UFOs. They, I never saw anything, so I can't tell you what they were. All I said was I saw the, I remember seeing the radar contacts and like mm -hmm. the, I knew the people involved. And when I talked to them, I was like, okay, you, you saw what you saw. I couldn't tell you what it was, but uh, mm -hmm. now Rebecca, I don't know if she wants to sell anything. You want me to tell it? Yeah. Okay. She uh, she saw something that we probably we think is correlated to the Phoenix Lights. Oh, interesting. Yeah, cool. She was. Um, this was March of 
March of 97. And she was back. She was pregnant with Clara. She was in, and she was in Odessa at the time. I was uh, stationed in Washington. So we were, we weren't together at the, at that time or we were, we were married, but we were, uh, I was doing a bachelor thing at the point at that point. And, uh, they her and her grandfather had gone outside to look at the. What he was had it? a new telescope. Yeah, he had a new telescope. But he, and he wanted me go. Yes. Could you hear? Yeah. Okay. She he had a new telescope that he wanted bingo. And I had a couple of friends over, and um, we were just looking at the stars. <laughs> Hi. Uh, Hi. <laughs> we were just looking at the stars just trying to check out new telescope and uh like no big deal and then um my best friend that was out there with me amber she had to go in and use the restroom and her husband was out there but he was out at on the street smoking a cigarette so it was just myself and my grandfather right there by the telescope we weren't even looking through the telescope at the time uh all of a sudden my grandpa says what is that? And he looks up and I look up and it was so quick. It was so absolutely quick that there was no way that anybody else could have seen it. We had to absolutely be looking at the sky at that moment. And we saw this huge, huge, it was, it was bigger than like, I would say a football field of very, very dim lights in a triangular shaped pattern flying over so quickly, no sound whatsoever. And I grew up right next to a local airport. I grew up, you know, I know, you know, plane sounds. And my my grandfather was in the Air Force. So for Mm -hmm. there to be no sound whatsoever, it flew over so quickly and so dimly that nobody would have noticed it, really. The only reason we noticed it is because we happened to be looking up at the time. And this is the same wow. night. And there's the same the, night as, as, the as the Phoenix. I found out many years later that it was, wow. you know, the same, you know, night as the Phoenix Lights and all that. We just didn't know what to say, and we couldn't explain it to anybody because, of course, they're not going to believe us. Nobody saw it. That's amazing. Yeah, it was really, really eerie, but so cool. <clears throat> yeah. And then, we, wow. and then she and about you were, you were speaking about um, ninety degree angles. Mm-hmm. saw something mm-hmm. um when uh when fred and i finally started you know living together after claire was born we were up mm-hmm. in port orchard washington and uh we had a we had an apartment and we were on the second floor and i would go outside at night to smoke a cigarette or you know just be out there on the porch and uh i think he was out to sea and claire was probably asleep of course because i wouldn't go out there if she was awake but um, I just looked up into the sky and I saw this one, it was a red light. And I was thinking, oh, that's got to be maybe a flare or something. Shot straight up. <coughs> and I was like, what is, what's that? You know, it hovered for a while. Because it came up, you said it came up out of the trees, right? It came up out of the trees. And we were surrounded by forests, of course, it's Washington State. And, uh, and then it just turned off 90 degree angle and just zoomed out of, you know, sight. And there's no way a flare can do that. So I was like, uh, yeah. okay, I'm going to go back in now. And uh, that's, that's, 
I'm done. <laughs> done stargazing. Time to go. <laughs> yeah. Good night. Oh, Enough yeah. sky for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I have plenty more stories. But those two, since you said that you saw, you know, yeah, the light like that, the 90 degree angle stuff. I was like, oh, wait. Got mm-hmm. one like that. Yeah. <laughs> Just like that. Never saw it again. Never saw anything like that again. Until we got um, to Japan. Well, of course, until we went to Japan. But no 90 degree angle stuff. I yeah. mean, that was a. Yeah. It made no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But she would see, she would see things. Um, let me turn here. She would see things when we were in Japan. Uh, we lived in a, in a, a, a tower, like in a, it was a small apartment in complex. Military housing. It was military housing. It was a, a, a nine-story tower, and uh, we had a little ba- we had a little ba- uh, balcony, and she would go out there and smoke a cigarette, and uh, it kind of faced a hill, but there was and there was trees and, and foliage around this hill, but you can see out a little ways, and she would see what lights and all kinds of lights, all kinds of anomalies. Nothing that makes sense because, you know, when you live around military bases and installations, you're going to get used to what is common to see around there. Now, Mm -hmm. these things that I've seen have been, they didn't make any sense. It was just too weird. Like there, there'd be red lights, yellow lights. And I'm like, okay, red lights is one thing because, you know, with uh, the way airplanes, you know, have their lights, but, uh, the yellow lights and I don't know. I, I just I would see all kinds of stuff all the time. And you know, nothing ever got closed or anything, luckily. <laughs> or that I know of. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah. But um yeah, so how big were the lights? Oh, they were very, very they would, you know, they would be very far away. It'd be like, okay, if you were seeing a plane off in the distance. Mm-hmm. Okay. But um I, I none of them ever I, I couldn't really I don't know figure out what mm. they were. And I was familiar with the the air traffic patterns of that area and the right. flights going all the aircraft going into uh Haneda and uh gosh Merida. Merida, thank you. Were would they would all pass on the opposite side of the of the tower from us. So we wouldn't even see them. And the the balcony faced to the west. And now there was uh, one air station off to our northwest, but they shut down operations uh, at, I think, 8 o'clock every night. And I, I knew that for a fact because we, uh, we used to fly out of there quite frequently uh, going on missions to different places. And, yeah, you, you never could get out of there you know, past eight o'clock because that's that's when they shut down. So I knew that it wasn't them. And of course, me being a night owl and going yeah. out, you know, <laughs> like, oh, it's two thirty in the morning. It's still early, you know. Just you know, stuff like that. You know, that that's yeah, off snoral for me. And so, like, going out there at four would not be too late. Might be close to bedtime, but maybe not. You know, and I would see mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. Of course, I know it was in a highly you know populous area. I mean, of course, Japan, you know, very, very strange there. But 
Very dense. But seeing, you know, all those different things, I'm like, what? Okay. It, it just became like too often into kind of like, can't make sense out of this. Cannot explain it away. And that, yeah. that housing area we lived in, uh, that was that was a unique place in itself. It was kind of located inside a valley. And the there were there were tunnels dug all throughout this valley that were okay. bored in a good uh, sometime two hundred feet back. And the story that this little valley area, the, the, the housing area was known as a Kago. And I think it was uh, the actual the actual town was called Zushi, but the little section was kind of known as a Kago or Jimuji. And it had been occupied, that valley had been occupied for thousands of years because there was a small museum there that had displayed stuff that they had, uh, archaeologists had found there. So they had found, you know, graves, they had found pottery, this, that, and the other throughout that area. So we knew it had been occupied. We knew there were, you know, ancient burial sites kind of scattered throughout. But the really shocking thing about it was <clears throat> these tunnels uh, that when we found out later, these tunnels were, were dug by Korean slave labor and also Chinese slave labor and POW slave labor because that whole area was used as a weapons storage right. facility for the Imperial Navy. And it was located, you know, just, just far enough away from the Navy base to where they could, you know, hide all their torpedoes, bombs, or whatnot away, and then throw them on a rail car, get them down to the down to the ships, load them up, and send them on their way. Well, this whole this whole area was uh, created by Korean, Chinese, U.S., you know, various uh, POWs. Uh, there had been a POW camp on site. And eventually, after the after the war, it had been, of course, uh, torn down, and they built a elementary school on top of it. Fabulous idea! Yes. <laughs> and then there was a campground, kind of behind. There was a on the opposite side of the hill from where that was. There was a campground, and I'll never forget they they said, "Please do not go fishing in the pond because the pond has so much lead in it; it'll probably kill you. And if you catch anything out of it." And eat it, that, that'll probably kill you. And don't pick anything mm. up because it'll probably blow up. <laughs> oh no. How awesome. Oh. Yeah. So there, there was a, there, that's that's a fun vacation spot. Oh, oh, yeah. right I yeah. actually kind of want to go there now. <laughs> yeah. and they, even, and they even had a little happy little sign there next to the one of the ponds, had the happy little kappas, uh, which I'll get to in a second about what those are. These two little happy little creatures sitting there telling you. Warning you, don't go into the pond because you'll drown. Or, or we'll drown you, even though we're cute. But uh, <laughs> I'll get to the coppas in here in a minute. Uh, so this whole area is, like I said, it, it's it's a for, it's got ammo all over the place that you know could explode at any point. Uh, it was built by slave labor and POWs. And, of course, the Japanese were not known as the best humanitarian during the war. Um, so there's that. And at night, you would hear things happening. You would hear, um, we were on the ninth floor. We were on the very the top floor of this building. 
and we would hear tapping noises, like somebody was beating on the on the roof on the ceiling. You know, if we if if there was if there was a floor above us and there was somebody living there, we'd be like, okay, you know, it's the neighbors above us. You know, I don't know, tap dancing or something. But there was nothing. There was nothing above us to make this noise. Or that was mm. what was making this noise. Um, animals like like our cats would stare at things, and of course, you know, cats always look at you know supposedly look at ghosts, but they would kind of get freaked out looking at things in corners. Um, one of Clara's friends, I overheard her tell. I can't remember if she was telling Rebecca, or she, but I remember her saying that she was spending the night at our house or our apartment one night, and she saw a what she thought was a shadow person go across the hall and into her room. Uh, and then a lot of uh, my uh, shipmates who you know lived in that area, they all reported, yeah, things would move. You'd hear noises, you'd hear voices, and the Japanese uh, locals absolutely refused. To go into those those hills, all that all that campground area, yeah, that yeah, was they they gave it the X. That, that was their sign. Yeah. They want nothing to do with it, so they they stayed out of that area. And we, uh, you know, we what we found about found out about Japan. And here here's your public service announcement from Japan: If you've never been there. By all means, go. It is a beautiful country. The people are extremely polite, extremely friendly, very helpful. Um, you can taste take the top-notch customer service in the United States, and it is absolute garbage compared to theirs. It is just a wonderful country, uh, and it's unique because the you have. The ultra modern, right next to the ancient, and they just coexist, you know, hand in hand there. And some of the things we saw there kind of, you know, really lent to that idea. You would have uh, the the hills were dotted with uh, Buddhist temples and uh, Shinto shrines. And there was even a Shinto shrine just right outside the gate of the housing area where we lived. And I went to one of the festivals there, and you definitely—it's—it's it's like you know when you go into a an old church, you definitely get that sense that there's something sacred and divine there. And that is the sense you got at a lot of these shrines. It was just, you know, there's something there. And what what really struck me was that I got the sense that whatever it was, I know sometimes y'all refer to it as as the other or mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. that. It knew you were there. It knew that you were not from here, and it would almost kind of convey this feeling of, "I'm going to give you a little leeway because you're new and you're not from mm-hmm. here, but don't push it." You know, yeah. Don't put yeah. your luck. Um. So I, you know, I learned to be very, <clears throat> very respectful around the around the shrines there, and you would see, like, say, the the old and the new, just hand in hand there. But what really got me was some of the, I guess, spirits that we saw there. 
Uh, I saw one. Rebecca saw something. I don't know exactly how to describe what she saw, but what I saw was we were coming. We'd gone to uh, this Air Force base known as Yakota. It was about uh, a two-hour drive away. We would go there because it was uh, they had a better. It was Air Force Base, so they had a better. They had better everything. They had better PX, better housing, better everything. So we'd go there, look around, do some shopping, get Pizza Hut, and bring it back to the house. And by the time we got back home, it was usually or it was usually getting close to ten, eleven o'clock, mm-hmm. about to think. And the the streets that we were around our house or around our housing area, they were narrow and they were. They were very jam-packed, you know, close to each other, as you would expect. We're driving along, and it's it's dark. Um, the street lights are on, and they're 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 built in sta- in a staggered formation. So you have one on one side, and, st- and then one a little bit down on the opposite side. So they're kind of staggered. And and I mentioned that for a very specific reason, which I'll lead to. We're driving along, she's in the Clara's about is in the back seat asleep. Rebecca's in the front uh, front seat, passenger side, and she's dozed off. I'm the only one awake. And we were approaching uh, this this turnoff point where we turned to go to our housing, and there was a lot of people kind of coming out onto the street. And some of them were in kimonos, some were in normal clothing, and there was a train station right near there, so it was. We expected to see people. And it was also the time, it was in July, so it was the period known as the Oban. The Oban is, it's kind of like Halloween for them in a way. It's, they believe it's this period where, say what? Isn't late August. Into July, late to late August is this period. And they believe it's where the veil between the two worlds is the thinnest. And that the spirits of your ancestors can come and visit, and they have festivals celebrating them. And at the end of the Oban, they have these little lanterns at the light, and they'll float them in the river so that the spirits can be guided back to the other side. It's a time to honor your ancestors. Yeah, yeah. So it's not unusual to see people in kimonos at this at this particular point in time because. There's all these festivals going on. And we were going along. And I could see up ahead, in the standing under the streetlight, there was a woman on the right-hand side, or left-hand side, wearing a kimono. Nothing unusual about that as I, as I approached. But then as I got closer, I noticed her face. And her there was... So and there were, even though I was probably about fifty yards, give or take, from her, when I f- kind of got a first glance of her face, I could tell there was something off about it. And then as I drew closer, it, this sense became even more and more and more. It's like something's wrong with this woman. And then as I got even with her, she turned and she looked at me, and that's when I realized that ain't no woman. <laughs> <laughs> She looked, like I said, she was wearing a kimono, but she had what I can only describe as a no mask type face. 
Now, I don't know if you've heard, if you're familiar with uh, Nogogaki or Gak, I think that's how you pronounce it, Nogogaki. It's a, a very ancient form of theater that the Japanese have. And one of the, the features of it is that the characters will be performed using these wooden masks and they're beautiful masks, uh, made, usually made of wood, sometimes laminate. Uh, they're shined up and they're, they're painted and they, they can look like, uh, you know, they can be different genders. They can be supernatural uh, beings. And when the actors wear them, they will wear a headpiece over them so that it covers the lip of the mask or the edge of it so that it kind of naturally draws to their face. And usually they'll wear some kind of uh, kimono that kind of comes up and covers or comes right up to their chin so that it kind of covers again that lower half of the, of the mask so that it'll look somewhat natural. This woman had n none of that. I could see her neck. Very, very clearly I could see her neck. And then I could see her face. Her face was oval shaped and had very deep, what I can only describe as carved gouges in the uh, forehead. The cheeks were sunken in, sunken in. And I could clearly see just black holes for eyes. And then I could see her hair. But again, there was no when you wear, when you wear one of these things, you can see that that edge of the masks because they're fairly thick. thick mask. There was no there was no edge there. It just it was like it was her face, and she turned and she looked at me, and she shocked me so much that I actually jerked the wheel, which woke me up, which woke her up, woke Rebecca up. And Rebecca's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? What, what, what's the matter? And I was like, there's a woman back there under the streetlight. Yeah, streetlight, something wrong with her. Rebecca turns, she turns around, looks back. And the reason I mentioned that the reason these are staggered is because so there's only one lamp she could be looking at. She looked back and, she, and there's no woman there. Fine. Mm. So that, yeah. That unnerved me because, like I said, she was not paying attention to me until I got up even with her and right. turned and looked right at me. And I was like, oh, God, what is that? <laughs> yeah. Enough nighttime, time to go home. We're done. <laughs> yeah. We're going to put that in the note bag. And <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Of course. Seal that right up. Yeah. But of course, Japan has so many legends of various creatures and and i mean this is just talk full of of uh different spirits and stuff like that there's a uh, great book called uh Quidon, it's legends of uh, that has legends like this it tells you about some of them there's uh there's the kappa that i mentioned earlier k-a-p-p-a -P -P -A. and they're little supposedly little turtle-like figures uh that are about three feet tall and they have these flat heads with a little kind of indention on the top of their head that has some water in it that gives them supernatural powers and they will they hang around rivers and streams and they will come up out of the rivers and streams and they'll try to entice you to 
to a challenge of uh, of strength. And of course, you're thinking, yeah, you know. Well, first of all, you're you're sitting there looking at this little turtle creature, thinking, yeah, okay, sure, we'll wrestle. <laughs> I don't know what you are, but sure, we'll have. <laughs> I could take you. <laughs> uh, you know, my, my response would be like, I don't know what the heck you are. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, supposedly, you know, they would, uh, uh, this water would, uh, that's in there at the top of their heads would give them supernatural powers. So they would easily overpower you, drag you off to the water, drown you, and then eat you. Uh, yeah. So now, anytime there's, you know, the Japanese want to warn you about a possible area mm-hmm. that you might drown, they got these cute little kappa figures there where they're smiling, nice. waving at you and telling you, don't come here because you'll drown. <laughs> and we'll eat you while we're at it. There's, yeah, I know. Go ahead. I know. I know a few stories about Kappa. One of them is they like cucumbers. That's they right, like right. to eat cucumbers. Like cucumbers. That's right. And and if you're being uh, enticed by one and you want to get away and let them say face, you bow to them. Mm-hmm. So they'll bow, and then the water Water's will come out. Yep. Yeah. And then they lose their powers, and you can run away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you bow very deep so, to them because they're, they're very forced to bow yep. equally. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They're very polite, just mm-hmm. like yeah. the Japanese people. So you, in that, that you one, use that against them. And that one lady I ran into or I saw, she reminded me of, a, of another legend that they have of, of the, the no face people. And, they're, mm-hmm. and the story goes is that you'll come up to a person and you'll. They'll turn and they'll look at you and they'll have this smooth white, you know, shell where a face should be. And of course, the, the person usually freaks out, takes off running, and then uh, runs into somebody else. And of course, trying to tell that whoever this person is they run into, you know, what they saw. And the person will be like, oh, really? That's interesting. And then they'll look away and then they'll turn back and say, did they look like this? And it's the same entity. Right. So there's that one. There's the, uh, luckily we never ran into the Kuchisaka Ona, which is the, the slit face woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was the one, you know, she, they, uh, they wear masks over there all the time. Uh, just as a matter of course, that's just, you know, that's why, you know, it's funny the the whole coronavirus thing should have been no problem for them whatsoever. Yeah. Because they wear masks anyway, but uh, supposedly she goes around wearing this masks, and people will be like, "Oh, you're so pretty," and she's like, "Really? Do you think I'm pretty now?" And remove the mask, <laughs> scare you with this slit face. We went to did we go to where we go by Odawara Castle? You went by it. We went by it. Yeah, we went by this place called Odawara Castle, and it is the Location where the origin of the story that became the ring is. That's a unique, uh, interesting story. Have you ever heard of that one? It became a, a famous horror movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the legend of it itself is um, the daimyo, the, the master of the castle, he had a collection of 10 plates. They were given to him by the emperor, and he had a uh, young lady in his employ. Her sole job in life was to take care of the plates, and 
he had a he kind of had a thing for the young girl, so he he'd been trying to convince her to be his mistress, and she wasn't having it. So he comes up with this idea one day that he's going to take one of the plates and he's going to hide it, and let her kind of wig out about that, and then tell her hey, everything will be okay. I'll let this slide if you become my mistress. So he puts the plan in action. She shows up for work one day. She starts counting the plates. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And promptly she panics, screams. Of course, he goes and wants to know what's the matter. And she's freaking out. And he, he starts feigning anger with her. But before he can, you know, offer to, you know, let bygones be bygones, provided she be his mistress, she darts out of the castle and promptly kills herself by throwing herself down the well. Uh, that night, and of course now he's he's kind of like, well, that didn't work out well, you know. <laughs> and that night her ghost comes out of the well, goes to the room where the plates are kept, and starts counting. Hits nine and screams that they're heard throughout the castle. And it occurs on a nightly basis until finally the Lord is driven mad and eventually kills himself. And yeah, so that that's where the ring legend came, or where the legend came from. Gotcha. It developed into into the ring. And the only other thing we saw up there was, let's see, Rebecca saw. You want to tell this, dear? <laughs> okay, she saw a. She saw what she can only describe as what she thought was a, a vampire. And, okay. and what she's described him as was just a guy who was, he was old and he was sitting very still, but, in, but he just seemed to be taking in everything around him and was just intently aware of everything. And she just got this sense that he was way older than he looked. And as soon as he became aware that she was aware, he just disappeared. Out of you know, she just she turned away to look, glanced away for a moment, looked back, and he's gone. Hmm. And we saw that one in I think it was Yokohama. Actually, it was in a, it was an arcade in Yokohama where we saw that. You want to tell your your shirt story? Is that? Yeah. So. There's this clothing store in Japan called Uniqlo. It's basically like the Japanese H&M. They have these stores all over the world. And uh, I got this shirt from there one time. And it was dark blue. And from the very first time me and my mom saw it, we kept saying, man, this is a really pretty shirt. It's really cool. I just wish it was black. If only it was black, it would be perfect. It would match all of my other outfits perfectly. And that was kind of a thing. Whenever I would wear the shirt, it would be like, oh, I, it, that's a cool shirt. I just wish it was black. But uh, <clears throat> we left Japan in 2015. And I didn't take the shirt with me in my suitcase. So it was shipped over and it took like two or three months to get it. Yeah, about two months. Uh, and we finally got the, the boxes and everything. And I pulled out the shirt. I was so excited to see it. I hadn't seen it in so long. It was one of my favorite shirts. And the shirt was black. Now. <laughs> That's awesome. That is amazing. I got my wish. 
<laughs> that <laughs> is cool. Uh, I I can't explain it at all. I mean, there's no way for a shirt to just completely no. change color like that. No. It makes no sense. No. There's no way you could dye it. It has white parts on it, like white mm-hmm. right. Yeah. If you dyed it, that would be you know dye it too. So wow, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That is cool. There are people out there that are um, saying that the Mandela effect is evidence of um, timeline switches. Mm-hmm. So people, everybody remembers this from this timeline, but the timeline shifted. So you remember it, you're just in a different timeline. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a perfect segue to the, the, the next story I have that had nothing, this took place out, outside of Japan. Actually, the, the first half of it takes place uh, when we were going, when we were moving to Japan. Uh, we had uh, received orders, and we had, we were living in Rhode Island at the time, and we were going to drive from Rhode Island to Texas, visit family, and then get on the plane, go to uh, go to Japan. And on our way down, we passed by Gettysburg. Now, I am a military historian historian just not i mean i've been mm-hmm. studying this um military history of various sorts since i was like two i think and of course we were going by gettysburg and i was like we have to go see gettysburg i know we're on a timeline but we gotta go see gettysburg so we um spent the night in harrisburg the next day we head down that way Pulled over, <clears throat> went to Gettysburg, went to the visitor center. And then I recall we went from the visitor center into town. We went down uh, what Confederate Avenue, where the, the Confederate main Confederate line was. And of course, I was stopping and marking, you know, where the various statues and things were and noticing, okay, I knew where this this unit was here and that unit was there. And we looped around, and then we came up the Emmitsburg Road. And back towards town, and I remember I told, uh, I said, okay, there's only one other thing I have to see. And I said, I have to go see the angle. And the angle is this spot on the field where uh, the focal, that became the focal point of Pickett's charge on the third day. Mm-hmm. And so we get up there. And I, I already, I was already, you know, I'd studied this enough to, I kind of knew what was what. I knew what monuments were what. And, understood them. Uh, and I remember I parked the car, got out. And I want to preface this by saying this was not the first battlefield I've been to at that point. I've been to several Civil War battlefields and a couple of World War II battlefields at that point. I mean, I'd, I'd actually spent the night on the Arizona Memorial one time as a guard because Clinton was uh, President Clinton was going to be visiting the next day. Creepy, but you know, <laughs> nothing, nothing weird happened. <laughs> but it, you know, you're, you know, on this thing, and you know what's below you. But yeah. So I'd, I've been to several fields before. I stepped onto that field, and I was just hit with this overwhelming sense of sadness and anxiety. And anger. I mean, just, just, it was like a, a wave of just different emotions, just bam, hit me all at once. And I could only 
all I could do was I started walking towards this one spot, and I just I don't know why I made a beeline there, but I just it was like I was had tunnel vision and just had to get to this one point, and I got there, and what really got me was I was crying. There were just tears streaming down my face, and I got to this one spot, and I realized what it was was this little scroll looking like marker where General Confederate General Armistead had fallen. And I was just like, I didn't understand what was happening to me. I couldn't understand why all of a sudden I just felt all that and what led me to that specific point. I mean, I knew what it was. When I got there, I knew what it was, but I just had to go there. It was, you know, there was a, a million other little things to see, but I had to go to that point. And it took me a few. I mean, I just left her. Clara was, you know, still kind of looking around like, are you going to tell, you know, she was waiting for me to go into my spiel of such and such did this and such and such did that. And blah, blah, blah. And she's just kind of like bracing herself for that because dad, daddy's not going to shut up, you know. <laughs> Didn't do it, and I just uh, just completely forgot that she was there. Forgot Rebecca was there, and it took me a while to kind of overcome this and kind of clear my head and get out of that. And I was just like, that was weird. I don't I don't know why that that happened. I couldn't figure out why of all places that I've been to, you know, that would hit me that way. So we looked around a little bit and we moved on. We're going to jump forward a little bit of time here. And, and I visited a few other battlefields. Uh, went to the, uh, the small island called Peleliu. Went into a cave. Accidentally stepped on a Japanese body. Didn't even realize. So. Yeah, that was unpleasant. Uh, <laughs> almost got blown up by a 70-year-old explosive that I found that was a rigged uh, improvised explosive device. Uh, you know, never felt anything there. Uh, trampled all over Okinawa, which is practically one big mass grave, and never felt anything yeah. there. Uh, and then I retired, and we came back here to Virginia. And twenty, I think it was May of 2016, we decided we were going to take a little day trip up to Richmond. And I wanted to go see the Museum of the Confederacy again. I'd, I'd been there before when I'd, when we had been stationed in Norfolk uh, from the early 2000s. And I was, I told my wife, Rebecca, I was like, hey, I want to go see it again because I know they're probably going to, it's going to close soon because it had become surrounded by this massive hospital. It was originally built as a adjunct to the uh, Confederate White House, which is what where Jefferson Davis had occupied. But over time, this hospital had just popped up around it and completely surrounded the thing. So trying to get to it was, you know, almost impossible. So they were losing visitors and stuff like that. Uh, and so I wanted to go see it one more time. And uh, I pretty much knew what was in there already because I'd been several times. And uh, we went inside, looked around, and... That's our cat there. That's our other cat. <laughs> anyway, so we, we were looking around. We went to the first floor, and um, there was a 
sign that said that was that there was a special exhibit on the second floor. So I went up to that uh, to the second floor, and it was an exhibit uh, detailing the history of the Confederate battle flag through time, from the time it was in, of its inception, and then how it was perceived to all the way to modern day. And you, you walk in, and it starts off with, of all things, the Dukes of Hazard. You know, and you see the General Lee car and stuff like that, and then it kind of progresses and starts telling you a little bit more about, you know, this is where their origin was and how they had developed it because, you know, the, the confusion on the battlefield. And we're just barely into the this exhibit. And all of a sudden, I felt like somebody just punched me right in the chest. I mean, like somebody just, like somebody just come up and just hauled off and punched me right in the solar, solar plexus there. And I actually kind of, jerked forward a, a little bit and kind of let out a gasp and Rebecca was right next to me and she was kind of surprised and she looked at me because she thought I was she thought I was having a heart attack or something like that and she's like are you all right and I looked at her and I said they're here and she looked at me like what and I said and then just looked at her and I said they're here and I turned to my right and just took off, and I went all the way to the end of the the end of the exhibit, just ignoring everything you know, that was you know on either side of me, all the way to the back wall. And there, on the back wall, there were three battle flags: the fourteenth, the ninth, and the fifty-third Virginia uh, Infantry Regiment battle flags. All of which were captured at that po at the point of the angle at Pickett's Charge, and also right there was uh, General Armistead's sword. And like I said, he was the one that 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 point that I was drawn to. That's where he went down, and he he famously got out in front of his men because normally a general's position and at that time would have been behind his guys, and he. He got out about 50 yards ahead of him, took his hat off, put his hat on the tip of his sword and, you know, rallied his guys to follow him. And he he was his units actually broke through the Union line and actually punctured them for a little bit before they were overwhelmed and thrown back. But all those flags had fallen there at that point at the angle and had been captured there. And once again, the the waterworks hit and I was just like, there you are. Yeah. So I like I said I don't know why. I don't know what what that's about. You know, some people have said, well, maybe it's a we're in a past life or something like that. I'm like I, I don't know. I don't necessarily you know believe that, but or maybe it's just you know I don't think I'm particularly sensitive or anything like that. Not like like these two are. But that hit me, and that I never can have been able to adequately explain why that was, and why, why, why did I mutter they're here? I didn't know who I was talking about, but they were there, and I had to go find. Them. Yeah, and uh, that's really cool. There they were. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I went to Gettysburg. Morgana and I went mm -hmm. with um, my younger child's fifth grade class mm -hmm. 
as uh, as family sort of augmenting the the teacher's yeah. authority. We became authority figures uh, because I have the voice of a drill sergeant. So I was really good at getting the kids to come back to the bus. Chaperoning. <laughs> yes, I was the chaperone with the voice. And we had a great time. We wanted to go because we had never been. And we're both history nerds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first moment that we crossed over into the into the line, into the confines of the city, mm -hmm. the town, I felt it. I was reading. I had my nose in my Kindle, mm -hmm. minding my own business, and I felt something. And I looked up, and the same thing happened to Morgana. She had her nose in a yep. book. We were right next to each other. We just looked at each other, and I'm like, we're here. Mm -hmm. And she was like, yep, we're here. Mm -hmm. um, we had lots of weird things happen, but Pickett's Charge was the last day. Mm -hmm. And they made us walk the whole battlefield. Oh, so you went that and whole mile across? Yep, yep. We walked the entire battlefield. We followed the march forward where they're walking right into artillery. Mm -hmm. And I'm terrible with the sun. My people all come from like Germany and Ireland and places where there is no such thing as sun and <laughs> there's certainly no heat. Yeah. And, you know, we're walking and it was hot and the sun was beating down and we're going and we're slogging. And one thing I noticed is everybody started getting really, really emotionally charged. Mm -hmm. The kids did not really know why they were getting upset, but they were all getting fractious, cranky, just they were sniping at each other. There was a lot of aggressiveness, you know, even kids who are normally really well behaved were getting just nasty. Mm -hmm. And that was not helping my mood. But we're going and going and going. And all I could think of was I can barely breathe. I'm drinking water like crazy. I'm sweating and I'm wearing loose cotton clothes. And, and in my brain, I'm like, those poor men were wearing wool. Mm -hmm. And they were carrying kit bags that weighed at least 45 pounds, usually closer to 80. I was like, and they're walking into the teeth of artillery. Mm -hmm. And I got so angry. I was furious. I was like, if I could grab those generals right now, I'd <laughs> shake them. I was just like, why did you do this to your men? Oh my God. I was furious. By the time I got to the street, I know I was like, there are so many other ways you could have done this. I get to the end and I'm about to pass out. I'm just laying under this, this tree. And you know, everybody's like, you, you look awful. You look like you're having heat stroke. I'm like, well, I am. Um, but I, I, you know, but don't worry about me, you know, just, I was like, I, as, as bad as I feel, mm -hmm. the men that were on that field, oh my God, oh, yeah, it's just horrible. Oh yeah. You know, I didn't see a ghost. I didn't, you know, not there, not on Pickett's Charge. I saw other ones elsewhere, but I, I felt that. So when you were talking about that feeling of being pushed forward and, and feeling anxious and angry and sad and 
Greet mm -hmm. was exactly how I felt, yeah. although I got way more of the anger than well, you did. Well, it's good to know I'm not the only one. No. I actually went on my own little side side quest one time through there, and it was the same thing. You know when you're there. Yeah. You just feel it. You're just overwhelmed with it. Yeah. And you see, that's why it kind of surprised me that, that I felt that there. And, and you're right, because, you know, when you, you look mm -hmm. at what those guys were doing and yeah. The conditions they were, I mean, I'm, I'm off, I did Civil War reenacting at one point, and I'll tell you what, if you want to lose 50 pounds in a weekend, I'll show you <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah. But uh, when, like, I went to, to Peleliu, and it's this, it's a tiny little island out in the middle of nowhere. It's out in uh, the uh, Palau Islands. Beautiful, beautiful islands. But when you get there, and there's, it's virtually, it's virtually untouched, more or less. I mean, you find wreckage of tanks. There's still aircraft on the field. Uh, the Japanese buildings are still there, and they've got massive holes on in them from where their artillery just blasted them. Um, the Navy shelled this island for 72 hours straight and flattened everything and yeah. denuded the entire island of all, of all foliage. And there was a small, there was a small ridge line. It's more like a hill that ran through the spine, uh, kind of through the middle of the island. The Japanese had just tunneled all through there. And like I said, it, it was weird because I didn't, I, I could sit there and point out exactly who did what and where and all this, that, and the other. No emotional feeling at all. And even when I went into this one tunnel that they had just, they had just opened it up. And uh, they, the uh, tour guy said, "Yeah, you can go in. You got a flashlight." And like, yeah, and they're like, "Okay, just be careful," and turned me loose into this tunnel. And I stepped in there, and uh, it kind of opened up, and there was just—it was just littered with uh, shattered plates all over the place. I could see a few gas masks here and there. And all of a sudden, I tripped on something, and I looked down, and there was a little metal piece sticking up out of the dirt. And I looked down with my flashlight, and I picked it up, and this, what was left of an Arasaka rifle, came up out of the dirt. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to set that back down. <laughs> and then I saw two little lumps, and I kind of kicked at them, and a left hobby boot popped up, and then a right hobby boot popped up. Oh, man. And I kind of reached down, I looked down, and I was looking at it, and I was like, "Look at that shoes! Oh, wait, that's a left shoe. That's a right. That's a right shoe. Left shoe. Look at all this weird flecky stuff on." And then I got down a little bit closer, and then I was like, "That's bone marrow, and that's the guy's <laughs> shoes, and that's his rifle, and I'm standing in the middle of him." And yeah, so that. Ugh. You know, I mean, that's enough cave out at the right. done with that. <laughs> Moving on, <laughs> popped out of there immediately. Started yelling, Go, come in the side, come in the side. <laughs> we're good, we're good. Apologize, <laughs> sorry about that. Didn't mean to step on you. <laughs> uh, but even with that, you know, in, in the intensity level of, of fighting that went on there, because it, it was just awful, absolutely awful. I mean, if you watch, it's depicted in the uh, HBO series The Pacific. Or you can read about it in uh, Eugene Sledge's book uh, with the old breed. It's god awful battle that actually uh, 
probably one of the most costliest battles in the Pacific that they engaged in. And like I said, I never felt a thing, which was just weird to me because I'm like, here I am trampling, you know, through an untouched field, stepping on bodies in some cases, and never felt a thing. Now, when I did was at the Arizona Memorial, like I said, that one, that was a bit more creepy because, you know, we, um, the ship that I was on, it looks like the Chosen had been picked as the honor guard ship. So we were parked where the USS Missouri is now. And the uh, Arizona is like directly in front of us. And they wanted us to, you know, they want uh, the security forces wanted somebody on the memorial overnight. So I remember standing about a three hour watch on that thing in the middle of the night. And that was just, ugh. Because you know what's down there, you know. You know yeah. they, all, they all died very. Most of them died very instant, you know, very quickly. But you know, still, yeah. you know, you know what happened around there, and it's just like, nope. Like there was a friend of mine. He's like, "Oh, wouldn't you like to go diving on it?" It's like, hell no, mm. absolutely not. Okay. Enough ocean. Yep. Nope, not doing nope, it. Not <laughs> going there. I want nothing to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a big no. Yeah. That's a big no by my list as well. Or like, wouldn't you like to go dive on it? Hell no. <laughs> like I know what's in there. Thank you no. I'll, I'll I'll look at the I'll watch the video later. You let me know. Yeah. So Yeah. Do you have any other? I forgot to mention with my shirt. I said that Uniglow is very popular for a reason because the tag on the shirt is different. I have it right here. Nice. This is the shirt. But the tag is different. It doesn't say Uniglo. It says Art Artistic Runner, and it's like a weird cloth tag, like some kind of tag that you would find on like a shirt that somebody made themselves, like their own brand. Oh. Like definitely not oh, wow. a name brand type of store. And you can see it's that's so crazy. flimsy. It's very flimsy. Yeah, it's oh, weird. It's Uniglo, so it would have to have Japanese writing on it. I mean, you know. It would have to say Uniglo. Would have to have all the information about how to wash it and everything, and it's just completely different. I, That's alternate wild. alternate timeline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if you can see back there, but uh, let me see if you can see it. Nah, you can't. It's too bright. Actually, no, you actually can. That uh, and this is great for podcasting because you can see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. the, the china closet, the china closet yeah. back there. Yeah, that's that's in Virginia's china closet. Nice. Uh, thankfully, nothing is nothing has happened. <laughs> good, it's not moving around. Not moving around, which is a very good thing. That's good. Uh, and that. I don't know, you know, who's going to get the picture. My my mother keeps telling me she's like, if you two keep fighting over who who gets the picture, she's going to. She's gonna let you know about. It. He'll let you know. She's gonna pick. Yeah, yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting about that picture. When they're that heavy, they don't move easily. Oh no! Yeah. And this thing is, you know, was easily ten pounds. Yeah. See that stuff like that doesn't move easily. Yeah, and it was, like I said, it was it was a heavy, heavy picture, and it like I said, it would it would just hang askew. Mm-hmm. For, and we never could figure out why that was. And it wasn't until my sister finally kind of 
put those things together and it said, oh, it's every time something something weird happens to family. Yeah, there's some kind something of something unhappy. Yeah. yeah. And Virginia's not happy. She's going to let you know about it. And she can just <laughs> twist and turn there. So, yeah. That, that's pretty amazing. Like I said, dude, that's, you know, I, I, when I originally had written you, I told you I didn't think I had that much to tell. And it wasn't until I did this other podcast. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I do have yes, I do. these things. Yeah, you've got yeah. plenty to tell. And nowadays we're we're sitting here in uh, in Newport News, Virginia. We got uh, mm-hmm. we got the nice little our house backs into a creek that empties into the James River, and nice. we don't go back there because uh, well, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if I see your um nothings bouncing. Mm, yeah, little lights. Yeah, yeah, she's seen some stuff back there. And I am definitely of the opinion that, you know, there's that little line of demarcation there where I'm just like, nope, that's that's uh, the, the the realm that's of the their ju- side. Yeah, that's the realm of the yeah. Japanese commies. Yeah, yeah, just just leave that be. Yeah, we're gonna leave. We're gonna leave you be, and you know, we're not gonna go there. And of course, this whole area is just chock full of, you know. You name it, and we've got uh, we're in the uh, right on the edge of what's known as the Colonial Triangle. We have uh, we're only about thirty minutes away from Yorktown, and then about forty minutes away from Jamestown and Williamsburg. So that makes up that little old triangle right. there. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, there's you can't throw a rock without hitting something haunted around this place. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where uh, where our house is located, there's one, two, three, one, one, you, uh, one army fort, one uh, air force base, and then the largest naval base in the world, just you know, just only right. fourteen miles away. So we have all types of aircraft flying around here all the time. We've got Air Force One once a month comes and wakes us up. Yeah, wakes us up. <laughs> And the yeah. kitchen goes over at Langley, and so we, you know, it's you look up and you see Air Force One just, you know, yeah. <laughs> rolling over your head. But it's uh, we're also just right off that area where all the UAPs are being seen by the mm-hmm. yeah. That's kind of weird, you know, to know that they're just right out there, and it's and it's waters that I had been plying out, you know, for years when I was stationed out here. Never saw anything unusual when we were out there. Uh, no USOs, no UFOs, no UAPs, nothing. But now they're apparently they're constant out there. From what I, from what I, yeah, that's what I've been hearing. And my dad didn't see anything in Norfolk itself. He was stationed out of there. Um, but on the first cruise of the Lawrence, mm-hmm. he saw a USO. Mm-hmm. And that one he knows is in the log because they they woke up the captain and, you know, they were changing. He, the captain ordered a change of course. Of course, he can't change course without asking him. And right. Th- basically, what the light did is it stayed the exact same distance away, followed every course change, followed, you know, speeding up, slowing down. 
did everything the exact same and was right on the water. Sonar had a reading, but it wasn't anything known. Yeah. Radar had a reading. It was nothing known. And then it just disappeared. Yeah. It didn't go away fast. It just disappeared from the sonar and the radar. It winked out. It was gone. Mm -hmm. Um, He was on deck watch. So so he he was the first one to see it. So he's topside, probably, you know, depending upon the time of year, either freezing his butt off or sweating to death. And he was freezing. Yeah. Staring. (laughs) Yeah. Been there, done that. No feeling. (laughs) Yeah. And you just see these things out there. And, And the thing about it is that it is, you learn after a while uh, when you're on watch like that uh, that you, you can see, of course, you can see forever because there's no light pollution and you can yeah. see every freaking star in the sky. And you can even, after a while, you even recognize where things are, the stars are reflecting off the water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once you become accustomed to that, then when you start seeing these lights, it's like, that ain't normal because it's not a reflection. It's not a, it's not a, you know, you can have mirages out there, but every time I've ever seen a, any type of ship like mirage out there, it's whatever it is, is always compressed and it's got that kind of a wavy, you know, right. heat signature. That uh, heat, yeah, heat yeah. signature. And, you know, from what I've uh, read from, from other people who've seen these things that they don't see that. But <laughs> yeah. What makes me wonder is to, you know, what it is they're seeing out there, because this is a it's a controlled area. Um, and they try to keep commercial traffic, you know, out of it. They all the commercial traffic kind of actually they break further north and then turn to come into the coast and stay out of that area. Mm-hmm. Pleasure craft are only allowed so far out. And then you have coast the Coast Guard and uh, regular aircraft flying out there that'll That'll warn you off and tell you, hey, yeah. so we're out here doing stuff, shooting at things. You don't want to be out here, you know, so back off. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know what they've seen, they're seeing out there. And I know it's uh, in my current job working for – I just changed from working for the Department of Defense back to the Department of the Navy. And I've seen – briefings related to this stuff and some of the things that uh you know that they kind of alluded to in the unclassified report that came out and i don't know what it's yeah it's, it's stuff that i haven't the slightest clue as to what it is some of the some of the information that they had in there relating to what's been experienced just seems very unusual. Uh, they do seem to be kind of pushing this track now of if you see something, report it. I'll say that. Which is good. Yeah, which is good. Yeah. So, you know, they at least, you know, they're seeing more. What I don't understand is why the it's only the Navy really reporting this. The, the Air Force, because I know the Air Force has seen it too. I know that for mm-hmm. facts. But the only thing hitting the head, making the headlines is what the Navy is seeing. And I, and I find that very odd because the Air Force is very territorial about their thing, which is, you know, airspace and, and space, of course. 
and they're extremely territorial about it uh, mm -hmm. for budgetary reasons, obviously. Yeah. And I would think, okay, if, you know, there's something going on, you'd probably want to kind of make a, make a fuss about it in Congress so that we got a threat. I need more cash so I can figure out what that threat is. And, you know, mm -hmm. they're kind of being quiet about it. I, I do wonder if there isn't something about the ocean itself. Um, they're being seen around water on top of water coming into or out of water. It's, yeah. well, it's not unknown. That is, that is true. Um, I don't know how to. And I think Navy seems to spend more time out in deep, dark skies than any of the other services. Well, that is true. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to tell you this without getting in trouble. Uh, <laughs> it's not just the water. It's okay. not just the water. Yeah. Um, and it, it's other places. And it was, I, from when I saw some of these other places, I thought, well, what the heck's near there that, you know, would they would, right. you know, I was thinking, okay, well, if they're showing up off the coast of California, off of San Diego and off the coast of Virginia Beach, those are big training areas. What do we got there in this other in these other spots? And there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing in those areas that that I'm aware of that uh, would draw their draw such attention there, or that would um, lead me to believe that it's you know some you know black operation, you know some new technology that they're testing right. or something like that. Then again, maybe that's where they test it. You know, that would make sense. Yeah. But it's it's not just the water. Yeah. It, okay. it, there's a lot of other hot spots. Uh, not and not just here, but everywhere. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I know that uh, it isn't just our nuclear weapons sites that have been. Oh yeah. Targeted, but China and Russia mm -hmm. and India. Yeah, some of, the, um, some of the stuff I've seen Europe. Around, uh, as it relates to Russia, yeah, they uh, and the Russians aren't shy about shooting. They mm -mm. no, they have no problem not. with uh, going going weapons hot like that. And uh, yeah, it's it's mm -hmm. yeah. The Chinese aren't shy about it either. No, the Chinese the Chinese mm -mm. can go trigger happy pretty quick and. What I'm surprised at is there's a few around the uh, the Korean Peninsula, and those guys <laughs> have no qualms with shooting at anything that moves at any, at any given time. I mean, it's you know, having been to the DMZ at least once. Yeah, that not the place to screw around. The, no. They get a little they get a little trigger happy over there, so. Yeah, it, it's like I said. It makes me wonder as to what it is. I know I, I follow a guy on uh, YouTube. Uh, gosh, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but he, he's a former F fourteen backseater, and uh, he he addresses a whole lot of stuff. He talks about everything Top Gun got right and wrong, that type of thing. Um, 
but he did address the uh, UAP issue. And he was of the opinion that it's some kind of new, you know, terrestrial technology that the U.S. is developing. And he is, his uh, basis for that was just the fact that they're showing up off the coast of Virginia and off the coast of, uh, of uh, California. Uh, based on, of course, I don't know what his current job is. Uh, my impression that he's not uh, involved in Department of Defense activities anymore, but uh, I, I don't. Based on what I've I've seen, I don't think that's the case. I think it's something else. But what that else is, who knows? Yeah. So it's definitely curious. I mean. And then, of course, the only other thing they supposedly got around here is Bigfoot and the occasional werewolf-looking thing, dogman type thing down in North Carolina, but, which is understandable because once you drop south of the Virginia line, it is just like yeah. way barren down there. And it is. Yeah. Creepy. And yep. My brother was stationed at Pope. Oh, okay. So, you yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A whole lot of nothing out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they call it no hope. hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone I know they always called it Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, <I> like that. Because <laughs> there's a lot of the training there, but yeah, they <laughs> yeah, not a not a great area. Yeah, I flew mm-hmm. there one time and I just kind of looked around like, oh, thank God I'm not in the army. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not a place I want to be. But yeah. So like I said, this area is just chock full of all kinds of, you know, history as far as that goes. And there's, like I say, you can't swing your arm without hitting something haunted around here. Yeah. Yorktown in particular. Um, I haven't been, uh, gone down to the plot of land where my family originated. And there's, there's still two houses down there that they built in the 1700s. But uh, nice. we haven't found any or heard of any odd reports down there even though i i know for a fact that the family is buried probably under somebody's house because oh. the others yeah, yeah. They, they had about a thousand thousand acres down there in the that between 1651 to well let's say about 1900 slowly shrunk down to just a few acres and then of course today it's just all just all you know, modern houses and stuff like that. Yeah. In fact, I got a friend of mine who I used to work with, uh, who lives in that area, and I told him that he owes me rent. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "How long have you been living in your house?" He's like, "I've been there about twenty years." And I thought well, you got about twenty years back rent, but I'll, I'll prove it <laughs> since I like you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that in small, non-traceable bills, please. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> It'll be nice. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for coming and talking with us. I'm glad yeah, you decided you had enough to talk about. Yeah, you did. You certainly <laughs> did. Yeah, apparently I did. And thank you for you know talking to us. Like I said, today was a, yeah. Today was a rough day for us, and we we were kind of uh, Claire and I were talking about it. And we're like, ah, do we want to do this tonight? And and then Rebecca's like, well, it would be a distraction for you. And I was like. Yeah, it would, yeah. Be, it would be so. Yeah, since since we had to say goodbye to one of our cats today, that was 
this was a, a good thing for us. And so we certainly appreciate it. And like I said, we love we love your show. Absolutely love. It. Well, thank you. We, thank you. It's something we do almost every weekend, especially in the fall time. We get the fire pit out. And we sit out there. We roast marshmallows and we throw you guys on. In fact, we started nice. listening to. Uh, what is it? It was uh, Strange Familiars. We were listening. To- oh, yeah. Oh, that's that's a good one. Yeah. And, and you were a guest on there. And we're like, ooh, this sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> Which, one last one. I'll end up. Okay. All right. And this just happened last week and it involved you guys. Okay. Uh, apparently, I was supposed to hear uh, the whole episode with, uh, what's his name? Uh, Guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as is my routine, I get up in the morning, I get ready for work, and when I'm getting ready, I throw on a podcast and I start listening, and I'll listen while I'm getting ready, then I listen on the way to work and on the way back. Uh, this particular day, I saw Where Did the Road Go? And they were talking about pyramid stuff, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this looks cool. So I hit play, I get in the shower. And I'm waiting for the little piano thing to open up for Where Did the Road Go? And instead, I hear flutes. And then I hear, <laughs> hear that? Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. I'm like, and I was like, wait a minute. This, ain't, this is not Where Did the Road Go? <laughs> I thought, oh, maybe he's doing a promo for them. Great. And then I'm waiting for Soraya to start talking. And then I hear you, Barbara, come on. And I'm like, okay, maybe I, maybe I hit the wrong button. So I, Finished my shower, I got out, and I looked at my iPod, and it's got where does the road go on it on display, and it says, you know, secrets of the pyramids, but y'all are playing. And I was like, that's weird. So I actually went back, to, uh, look, opened up your podcast, found the one that I was listening to, and I was like, okay, I'm deleting it. So I deleted it, went back. Deleted the pyramid one from where did the road go? Reloaded the pyramid one from where did the road go? Got in the car, hit play, and I hear flute music again. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. And I was like, what in God's name is going on? So I wound up listening to the whole thing. And of course, even on my even on the uh, the car display, a little uh, uh, LCD uh, screen there, it shows where did the road go with Soraya. Nice. Pyramid, you know, pyramid mysteries, and it's y'all talking. I'm like, wow, what is going on with I'm, that? I'm gonna have to apologize to Soraya for like <laughs> hijacking his, his podcast. That's and then poor Soraya. And then, later, <laughs> and then later that week, I saw uh, part two of it pop up, and so I downloaded part two. This time, it was Soraya, and it was well, that's good. <laughs> And then I saw the I saw the part one, so I went back, downloaded part one, and this time it was the right one. And the next day, that one disappeared. Oh, off my, off my okay. pod, and I'm like, okay, I guess I'm not supposed to hear that one. Went back, and oddly enough, the same mid the the uh, guy one was downloaded on y'all's podcast, and I was like, okay, that's enough. Apparently, I was supposed to. I surrender to the universe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so I well, I'll tell Guy about that. Yeah, I don't know if there's yeah. some little app if you're like, no, 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 you need to be listening to us. You know, <laughs> you've been listening enough to Soraya. Back, back, get back to John Keel. Come on. 
That's amazing. That's that's amazing. That's I I will apologize to Soraya though because (laughs) that's that's not not so cool to you know hijack his podcast. I don't think I don't think y'all did, but something. Something, something decided yeah. you needed to hear from God. Yeah, something that yeah. guy needed to be heard and he got overridden. No, Soraya just well, got overridden. No. There we go. Well, keep in touch with we us. Will. Um I'm really interested in those weird lights you saw in Japan. And if you mm-hmm. see any weird lights behind your house, I, I'd really like to hear about it. Well, we I'm looking out there right now. I don't see anything, but uh, Okay, well. She's Keep the, in touch. She's the one that lets him know, hey, we're cool. You know. Cool. Right. <laughs> cool. Yeah, she gives the peace offerings and uh, I learned my lesson because uh I had offered them flowers. I was kind of just offering it to general nature spirits. And uh y'all had heard that one podcast about the um nothing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about offerings and how, you know, if you give them an offering, you have to keep giving them an offer. Yeah. I didn't know that at the time. I thought, you know, if I do it one time, that's good enough. Well, clearly not because uh, they told me about that podcast and I was like, okay, let me just go get some more flowers just to be nice, you know. And I was at the store getting the flowers and uh, I was looking at these candles and I'm really kind of anal about candles being on the shelf and not having them fall off because I don't want to pay for things. Uh, (laughs) And I turned around and all of a sudden I had walked like maybe five, six feet away from where the candles were. And one just came right off the shelf and fell and broke. <sighs> yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> flowers, dang it. <laughs> I hear yeah. footsteps sometimes late at night. Just very unexplainable things. Yeah. Yeah. She hears them. Really cool. Yeah. And then- yeah. Then we have one other minor ghost issue going on, but uh, that's a story for another time. Yeah, it's a story for another time. <laughs> this one's too fresh. It's ongoing, and gotcha. It's the mother-in-law. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So, yeah. We well, keep her. You know, trying to keep her out. <laughs> well, or yeah. quiet. Yeah. So. All right. But, well, hey, we appreciate coming you. on. We love your show. Keep up the great work. We'll keep thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay. <laughs> thank Bye. you. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.